Hey, welcome back into That's the Truth Podcast. I'm excited to have you back and tuned in for a new guest episode. I am Jay Gallegos, and I'm excited for every guest that comes on here. I'm grateful for each and every one of them. Each guest is extremely special, and I'm honored and privileged to be able to share our conversation with you. And just before I present today's guest, let me remind you, my goal and commitment to you is to bring value, encouragement, and inspiration to your life with each and every episode. I hope that together we get one step closer and further along in becoming who God has intended us to be one step at a time so we can be effective and make an impact in every area of our life. Thank you to those who have tuned in and subscribed. If you have shared the podcast on social media, I truly appreciate the support. It means the world to me and it helps get the podcast out in front of others and it invites them to come along to learn and grow along with us. We invite others to join the community because we want to help and inspire others to become what God has called us to be. If you are new with us, here is what you can expect. We post a new episode bi-weekly, a teaching the first Friday of every month, followed by a guest episode. And today I'm excited to bring to you the awesome conversation I had with none other than Natalie Runyon. You may have seen on social media the hashtag raise to stay or what's also referred to as the black boxes. Black boxes with awesome quotes, facts, and truths about PK's ministry and church life. She is the founding creator of Raised to Stay and the Raised to Stay podcast. Natalie and her husband, Tony, along with her two daughters, lead New Life Church in Colorado. She is a women's pastor and creative pastor of kids ministry at New Life. She is a worship leader, songwriter, and now author. She is going to release a book later this year in June titled Race to Stay with the forward by Lisa Brevere. And Natalie is just a phenomenal all-around leader. And Will, the book is already an Amazon bestseller, and you can pre-order your book today on Amazon via the link in the description. So with that, it is a pleasure to invite you into my conversation with Natalie Runyon. Well, hey, Natalie, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome in. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us and to have a great conversation here with us and and to bless us. And thank you for being gracious with your time. We've been looking forward to having you. We've been very excited, looking forward to uh, some of the great things that you have coming up. You have a great book coming out. We're going to be talking about that as well. And uh, we're very excited to have you. And we've been looking forward to it for quite some time. So before we kind of jump into the book and we kind of jump into some of the things that, that we'd like to talk about and, and, and to ask you and, and get some of your experience on. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what's new in your world right now, what's new at New Life, and uh, what, what has you excited these days? Gosh, I, well, first of all, I am a wife and a mom of two teenage girls. So my husband, Tony, uh, he, we're out here in Colorado Springs and we are just learning how to do teen and tween life right now. So we've got a 10 year old and an almost 14 year old and, you know, growing up in the church and then raising kids in the church, it just feels like, uh, trying not to make the same mistakes that we were afraid that our parents were making youth group, like all the things that brought us life and joy in the church. We're watching our kids experience and it's ski season out here, so we're actually taking our mm. oldest skiing for the first time on Friday. Pray that nobody's ACLs get torn um, because we are old and brittle out here. So, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. it's definitely just a new season of, of parenting and life. So everything is, uh, we're just very blessed. So, 
Yeah, I'm sure you have your hands full going through that transition with <laughs> teenagers and preteens. And uh, I definitely can relate to that. Our 10-year-old is going through some transitions himself and is keeping us very, very busy, <laughs> asking some interesting questions and uh, interesting season in life. Yes. So <laughs> what you, were, you grew up in church most of your life. You grew up in ministry. You, your parents were in ministry. Uh, by the time that you were already introduced to, you basically grew up in the church. Um, what did life and ministry look like for you early on? What were some of the things that you were involved in and kind of take us through that process? I always say that the 80s and 90s in ministry were the best of times and the worst of times. You know, we didn't have social media. Most churches were small and, you know, there wasn't a lot of hype. There wasn't the mega church. And if there were mega churches, you didn't know about it. And we were family. The church that I grew up in, the churches that I grew up in were basically the people who raised me. And there were potlucks. And I lived in the church parsonage, which is the house that the pastor lives in on the church property. And, you know, we just, and just always were in the church. It was just part of our DNA. And I went to public school, um, but everybody knew me as the pastor's kid. And so it was just a very, um, I always say that I was like a kid wrapped in bubble wrap, wrapped in a bubble. It was just a lot of protection. A lot of um, people watched out for me and my sister. And um, I would say it was very euphoric and kind of like a little bit of a utopia up until my senior year of high school. And I think that's the first time that I really saw church hurt in my own life. And so, yeah, it was just up until that point, though, I would say that I had a very idyllic uh, pastor's kid life. Yeah, the life as a PK is very interesting. I grew up around a lot of my friends were PKs. I'm not a PK myself, but now as an assistant pastor, now raising two boys of my own, um, that kind of just transitions into that naturally. But I grew up around PKs a lot. I, I've seen a lot of the church hurt. I've seen a lot of the questions. I've seen a lot of the pushback. So growing up as a PK, was the general expectation that you would end up also in ministry just because your parents were involved at that level? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the family business that you don't want, but you couldn't possibly inherit if if that were the case. I wanted to be a youth pastor. I, I wanted to teach and preach. I would practice, you know, teaching in the mirror. I loved leading worship. Um, for me, it was just this no-brainer that I would go to a Christian college, that I would take that route. And, you know, it didn't happen that way. When my family got hurt my senior year of high school, I made a very abrupt decision not to attend the Christian college I was supposed to go to and ended up at a public university and majoring in exercise physiology, which was completely opposite of what my parents and family and everybody thought that I would do. And there is a bit of an identity crisis, I think, for pastor's kids. If I'm not in the ministry, then what is my thing? What's my gift? What's my, um, what's my ability, if you will? And thankfully, I think it's changing. That's changing. But in the 80s and 90s, yeah, that was a, that was a huge identity crisis to not do the thing that you thought you were going to do in ministry. Yeah, you, you share a lot of great insight and a lot of thought uh, regarding church hurt on social media, specifically on Facebook and Instagram. And I see that shared a lot. A lot of people would see him as a black boxes. And what is it about the raise to stay message that has resonated with so many people? Because it seems like 
that topic is a very popular topic nowadays. It's maybe attractive to talk about it and maybe not so much it was in the 80s and 90s and maybe even in early 2000s. But nowadays, it seems like church hurt. It seems like more of a popular topic. But the race to stay message and the black boxes, it just kind of seems to have raised a little bit of a an uproar, maybe a, a hit a nerve with some people because they maybe relate to it. And it's made quite a splash. You have quite a healthy following on Instagram, uh, maybe 80,000 plus. And it seems to be resonated with someone. So what is it about the racist state message that you think maybe hit the nerve somewhere? I think it's just brutal honesty. I, I think we danced around things so long. We tried to be the good kids. We tried to be pleasing. We tried to say, yes, ma'am, and no, sir. And we listened. We, uh, my generation was the true love waits and, um, I kissed dating goodbye and we were burning our secular CDs and our annual, you know, youth group bonfire. We, we were trying so hard to be something and to prove we could behave. And nope, we didn't ask questions. We didn't dive deep into the why behind why are we being told these things? Why, why is this how we're supposed to do things? And I I feel like the black boxes came from my own just guttural cry of, I don't want to quit, but I'm so close to quitting and here's why. And I, I think I finally was honest with myself. And then those black boxes gave people a language that they didn't know was okay to have. And that was, I don't want to deconstruct, but I do want to detangle from some of the things that are unhealthy and hurtful. And I want for us all to find a safe place. And I think that's what the black boxes have done. It's just given us a language and a place to say, oh my gosh, that's how I feel too. Right, right. Absolutely. And you know, in some cases, maybe hurt is inevitable. In some cases, maybe people hold their feelings too close in their sleeve or maybe too close or maybe too tightly. But in general, is the call to answering or is accepting the call to follow Jesus and accepting to serve others in ministry also an invitation for hurt and pain? Is that just an open door and an invitation as we accept the call? Yeah. And I think anytime we love, I mean, whether we are investing in people in a job or our neighbors or a relationship or with our children, like anytime we love and we love biblically, which is a selfless agape love, like when we love that way, we are putting ourselves in a path for potential heartbreak and hurt. And a good mentor of mine says that he would rather get to heaven and be told that he loved too much than that he didn't love enough. And mm-hmm. I think that ministry is an invitation to both, you know, presenting a gospel that will lead people to a Jesus that they want to know and, and salvation and, and forgiveness. But it's also an invitation to die to ourselves. And part of dying to ourselves is is being hurt and learning how to step into forgiveness as Christ loves and forgives us. And then also reconciliation. And what does that look like in the church to reconcile with people that have wounded us so deeply? And um, it is an invitation to both life and death. I think ministry in a nutshell. Yeah. I think that's a fabulous explanation of it because Jesus himself invited the disciples and Little did they know that he was going to die and little did they know that they were going to have to deny everything that they were involved with at the time. And that resonates and 
reflects back onto us as well in so many different ways. But also, I was very interested in this her, this church her topic because, like I said, it is very popular and it is very attractive for some to talk about it very openly. For some, not so much. But when you talk about church hurt, when one experience is let down by the church uh, or a specific leader or a group of people, does it always default as church hurt or is that an over-exaggeration or what should we categorize that? I would say in the raise to stay community, and I want to be careful not to generalize because I do believe that there is abuse happening in the church. Absolutely. I believe that there is hurt happening and I believe that there is offense happening. So those are the three categories that I see is true abuse, uh, devastating hurt and paralyzing offense. And the way that I would call abuse is I would say abuse is anything that is clinically traumatic and diagnostic in that we know what abuse is. Abuse is sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. It can be inappropriate text messages. It can be uh, toxic leadership that turns into spiritual abuse. When we go into a counseling office and it is clinically diagnosed, you have been abused and this is how we're going to help you heal. That is what I see happening probably the least the least percentage in the church is true abuse. Is it there? Yes. Um, but is it happening across the entire world all the time? I don't believe so. I think hurt is then the next section down, and that can come at the hands of a narcissistic leader. That can come um, through inappropriate leadership. It can come from um, people who have power struggles and um, having positions and, and just not clarity of communication. Hurt is something that literally does wound us. It is painful. And if we aren't careful, it can become abuse if we stay too long. If we don't listen to the Holy Spirit and get the help that we need, hurt is, I think, probably the next category. But I think, and this is just, again, I could be wrong. I believe most of what people are calling hurt is actually offense, where they have been in a church where they haven't gotten their way. They haven't been um, treated the way they thought they should be treated. They haven't been invited at tables. There are different ways that we would call offense because expectations have not been met. Um, Maybe you got a position at a church and you thought it was going to be one thing and it wasn't. There is a massive difference between abuse and offense. And I think we are in interchangeably using these titles and it's causing confusion. Yeah. What is one way that one can distinguish maybe church hurt and maybe lack of accountability? Because in some cases some would say, yeah, I was, I was hurt by, I was offended. And it's easy to say that, but in some cases it could be lack of accountability. How could we distinguish that and how could we help others with that? Yeah. Cause I mean, nobody wants to be corrected, right? I mean, we all want to assume that we're doing everything right, that everything that we do is met with good intentions and that we're not trying to hurt people. I mean, we, we all step into roles in the church with hope that we're going to do our job well, that people are going to receive us. And I think that for a lot of us, we get into things and we get corrected or we are held accountable and it's painful. I mean, it's any time that correction is put on us, it doesn't feel good. I mean, humility is humility hurts. It's like, ouch, that hurts my pride. And I think we are wrestling with a generation that doesn't want to be told no. They don't want to be put um, boundaries around. They don't want to have limits. And so we have one generation who's trying to correct another generation who doesn't want to be corrected. And 
that's how I think a lot of people do allow that offense to take root. We don't like to have hard conversations. We'd rather just get out. We don't want to be confronted. Um, and so honestly, I think a lot of what we're dealing with is just bad communication. It's you hurt me when you corrected me because you corrected me in a way that was not loving. Therefore I am now offended and now I'm hurt and I'm throwing the entire church out with, with the bathwater. Yeah. In some cases, why is it that some are more quicker to disconnect from the entire picture completely? They disconnect from God. They disconnect from the church when they experience some type of letdown or their definition of church hurt. Why is it that some are so quick to disconnect from God and the church as well? I think it's lack of encounter. You know, we have a lot of people in the church who have a lot of um, knowledge. There is a lot of understanding. They read a lot. They know scripture. They have listened to podcasts to nauseum, you know, so there's a lot of information about God. There's a lot of information about uh, Enneagram and how we should be using our personalities to connect with each other and God. But the encounter piece is lacking. There hasn't been a true encounter with the living God that has taught them fear of the Lord, that has allowed them to see miracle signs and wonders. They haven't been in their prayer closet, just, you know, learning to hear the voice of God. And so when they are confronted with confusion, there isn't a clear distinction between the voice of the enemy or the world and the voice of a good father. And if you don't know a good father and the only you know, corresponding evidence of God is a church that has failed you, then that would make sense that you would think if this is God, I don't want it. Yeah. Yeah. I think when it comes to the expectations of people versus the leaders, maybe the pastoral role in a church setting, when you look at the expectation, everybody seems to have their own definition of what that should be and what that role should look like, what that person should be doing or not doing or what it is that they're responsible for. But when you look at the expectations, do you see a lack of maybe vulnerability, lack of accountability? Um, What is it that that people struggle to accept when they look at the expectations of the leader and and, and when they, they struggle in accepting the correction? I will always say that we cannot communicate enough when it comes to the church and the people we are leading, because you and I may have grown up in this and we may be able to speak all the church language and, and know people's hearts and just know this is how it's going to be. But most people that are entering into church staff anymore are people who didn't come to know Jesus until they were in their late teens or early twenties, or maybe even thirties. They certainly weren't raised in church culture. And so they come in attaching a perfect God to imperfect people, and they assume that everyone's just going to get along, and there's going to be singing and rainbows, and it's going to be a big musical all the time. And I really believe as leaders, we have to over-communicate to our people what expectations there are, what behaviors are acceptable and not acceptable. And if we aren't putting processes in place to help people grow, and we're just getting rid of people when they don't do what we think they should be doing. We're not doing performance plans. We're not putting things in writing. It really is not going to serve people well, especially those who went to college who maybe worked in the world for a bit and they know what to expect from a boss or from an oversight. We as the church owe it to each other to really lay out what those expectations are so that when we hold people accountable, they know what they're being held accountable to and for 
And it's not just us throwing darts at a moving target. Yeah, you're pretty open about your experience with Church Hurt and your family. Could you walk us a little bit of what that looked like and how that went about? Yeah, I mean, when I was a senior in high school, my family was abruptly told, you're not going to be the pastors of this church anymore. And we literally had to move out of our parsonage, which we had been living in for years. And we didn't have a home. We didn't have anywhere to go. And we had to move over a horse barn. My senior year of high school, we lived in this efficiency apartment over a barn that some people we knew owned. And it was so humiliating and so devastating to watch my dad, who was my hero, like circling jobs for the first time in his life in a newspaper. And just this betrayal of people who are supposed to protect me and love me just one day decided we weren't going to be their shepherds anymore. And watching my parents hurt, get hurt was probably worse Um, because, you know, I'm 18 at the time. I didn't really know what that felt like. And I ended up going to a secular university, majoring in exercise physiology and kinesiology. Thank God for Campus Crusade for Christ, or I probably wouldn't have been involved in a ministry at all. I didn't go to church. I decided, hey, if this is church, no thank you. Like if if people are just going to betray you, I'm out. And it was probably in my early 20s as I was teaching, I was teaching physiology. Um, I started leading worship again. And, you know, they say you can run, but you can't hide. Um, I slowly kind of started integrating back into churches. And I was about 33 when I finally took my first full-time position and was able to stop teaching and not be bivocational anymore. And I just remember like realizing, oh, I do love the church, but part of the reason why I'm hesitant to get back involved is I don't want to be hurt again. It was a fear of getting hurt again. And like you said, it's inevitable. We're, when we say yes to a life of ministry, we're saying yes to, to brokenness and broken people. And um, throughout the course of the last 20 years, I have been through more pain from saying yes to the church than I would have been if I would have just stayed in a school and taught. I have subjected myself to identity crisis, to narcissistic leaders. I have had to sit in more offices than I'd like, turning people in and trying to expose toxic leadership. And it's awful. I mean, it, it is enough to crush you. And when I was 40, about three years ago, I told the Lord, I'm out. Like, this is not fun anymore. If this is what it is, it's just this constant being on my A-game and self-preservation and you know, just always getting hurt. I don't want it anymore. And I probably had, unfortunately, the the biggest hurt of my life at 40. And I had hoped at 18, that was as bad as it was going to get. Um, and the Lord just reminded me that this was not going to be a cakewalk, that this was going to be a life of, of self-sacrifice and being last and um, loving people and not being loved in return. And, and so that's where raised this day came from was at 40 years old, me being like, I'm out. <laughs> like, I don't, yeah. I don't want to do this anymore. And God saying, actually, I have a completely different assignment for you and it's going to require you staying through this to make it happen. And that's how the black boxes came alive. And I'm glad that you did stay because now you're helping so many people. And not just on social media, but now through your book that's up and coming and it's going to be released sometime in June. Is that correct? We're very excited about that. Yeah, I know July a lot of people 4th. are going to be looking forward to <laughs> July, July 4th. Okay. Yeah, me and so America, we're, looking, we're coming at you. <laughs> <laughs> we're looking forward to that. And it, it's forwarded also. I think you released a forward um, as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, Lisa Bevere wrote the foreword. And honestly, it's worth the whole book. The foreword alone is worth the whole book because when you have a general in the faith, like the Bevere's who have stayed through, raised four boys in the faith, you know, we really need to stop looking for these celebrities uh, who are kind of one hit wonders, get in and get out. But people who have towed the line, stayed through pain, stayed through hurt, moves across the country, like, you know, we need more generals. And that's where uh, Lisa came in and in the foreword is just, it's beautiful and stunning and it's calling people back into the house of God. Yeah. I, I love the fact that you did decide to stay and you answered the call and you were obedient through that. And at some point there was a healing process. At some point you said, okay, we need to rebuild. We need to repair and we need to put things back together, but we're going to do it the right way. Can you talk to us a little bit about what helped you most through maybe tools, resources that helped you through that healing process that would maybe help others that find themselves where you were at that point? I cannot stress the importance of spiritual direction, counseling, mentors. You need people in your life who are not on the same church staff as you, who aren't in the same grind, who can listen to you tell your story and what's hurting you and what's happening and give you tools in your tool belt to help overcome some of the lies of the enemy, but also just some of our own pain that actually didn't even originate from five years ago, but probably from 15 20 years ago. And I know growing up in the charismatic church that counseling was kind of viewed as, well, if you go to a counselor, you must not trust Jesus. And that's not true at all. You know, God has given us professionals. He's given us medication. There was a season I had to be on anti-anxiety medicine because it was so much. Like I just, I could not process everything that was happening to me. And I think we just need to give each other permission to seek help when we need help. And that's why, unfortunately, we do see pastors who take their lives and, and people who just walk away completely, not only from ministry, but life is because it got too heavy and it doesn't have to be that way. And so counseling has been huge. Spiritual direction is a gift. Um, going into a mentor's office, having a mentor who's 20 years older than you, who you can just call up and say, help me process this. Like this is, it's a gift to the body to have people who are older than us, who can speak life into us. So I can't say enough about about those three aspects of, um, getting help. And then finally getting mad at the real enemy. When I realized that it was Satan who was actually trying to divide his church and not people, then I got this like holy chutzpah in me, like, no way he doesn't get to win. Like he doesn't get to win. I am going to do what God has called me to do. I'm going to let God finish what he started in me because the enemy only wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And that's what this feels like right now. It feels like death. And I am not letting him win. And so it really kind of, I had to get mad at the right people. And that's only one. And that's the enemy. <laughs> I love that perspective because it completely takes the attention away from the enemy tagline, from our leaders, from the people, from the people that are actually trying their best, doing a, a, a doing God's work and God using imperfect people to help others. And it takes that away and it puts it where it should be. And in many cases, um, the experience of betrayal and let down by others and, and some of the advice and some of the loudest advice that people hear in some cases are to stay. Is that the only correct approach or is there other ways of looking about it or, or taking that on? No, because I, I believe that there is a time to go. I do believe that sometimes the answer to our healing is to, as it says in the New Testament, 
to the disciples, Jesus says, just like kick the dust off your feet. And that's not a bad thing. That's not like giving somebody the middle finger and being like, peace out. This is sometimes for our own health and for our own well-being. We need to go and to find a healthier environment, find a healthier church, because sometimes it just needs to happen. And sometimes for other people's health, we need to go. And there's humility in knowing when it's time, like when we've kind of run out of favor in a place and we know that God is saying it's time to go, there is a point where you can stay too long. And I think that longevity is sexy. I think people like to think I've been somewhere 20 years, look at me, but not to the point where it costs our health or we're being disobedient. And so I always say we're not leaving, we're going. Sometimes we need to go and to step into the new assignment so that God can replace us in that house and bring restoration where there needs to be not only for that house, but for us. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I love that perspective. It's very profound. And I think that's going to help a lot of people really understand where they are and whether or not they should stay, but not only that, but not walk away from God. And in some cases I've seen people get hurt. I've seen people walk away and blame God instead of maybe just making a transition, maybe kind of changing their environment a little bit. But what would you tell others attempting to rebuild and maybe reconstruct in a way, repair themselves and go through that healing process. But now they're doing it, what I would call incorrectly, because now they're trying to do it with Jesus on the outside because of their experience or whatever that have may been, whether if it was abuse, whether it was church hurt or not, they were hurt at some point, they were offended at some point, but now they're trying to rebuild and leave Jesus on the outside. What could we tell those people that can help them out today? First of all, I would, I would say that deconstruction as a whole isn't bad if you have the structures in place to rebuild something healthy. And you really cannot rebuild a spiritual deconstructed mindset without having strong spiritual leaders that you trust around you to help you put those pieces back together. And that can be in the form of spiritual direction, counseling, that can be a start, but the family of God and its whole is God's idea. It isn't like something that the American people just made up. It's a global, you know, kingdom mindset. The church is God's idea. And so therefore it's good that the bride of Christ is good. And so when we do start to detangle from religion, when we see some of the things that we were raised up in that caused us shame and guilt and things that aren't of the Lord, it's good to unravel ourselves from that stuff and then come back together through the help of spiritual counselors, directors, mentors, disciplers, and put back the pieces that are good. And to say, okay, this foundation built on Jesus Christ is actually who his word says that I am. This is how I need to move forward with the family of God to heal, to reconstruct, but doing it on our own is never going to be the answer to just hold away in our house and live off of Instagram hot takes and deconstruction websites and a podcast. That's not going to help us. We need the family of God, even in her um, imperfections. And so I would say, if you are in that deconstruction season, don't do it alone that there is something actually really beautiful that happens when we wrestle with the Lord and then surround ourselves with people who know how to wrestle with us. Yeah, it truly saddens me and it breaks my heart when people do walk away from not only the church, but they walk away from God 
entirely. It really does break my heart. And I've seen a lot of my friends, a lot of um, even relatives, even people that were very, very faithful at one point, And you thought they were going to be staying for a very, very long time. And all of a sudden, because of something specific, they decided to walk away. But what can we do as leaders to better understand? Because I think that understanding is a, a gift and it lacks in some cases, but when it comes to understanding, what can we do as leaders to understand better so we can serve the people that have been hurt and not necessarily default to the idea, well, they just kind of lacked perseverance. They just decided to give up on their own and maybe look inwardly and say, hey, look, maybe we need to adjust a few things here as a leader. I don't think we can ever ask enough questions. I think when people walk away, when they leave staff, when they are struggling in their positions, that we need to be taking more people out to coffee, more people out to lunch. We need to stop holding up in offices and doing 360 reviews and, and trying to figure out like why they're not meshing with our culture or whatever our language is, but really sit down and ask the hard questions. I think then when people do leave a position, we can't just let them go. I have never in my life seen more of a generation who is so quick to quit a position and then just not ever go back to the church. It's as if when they lost their position, they lost their love for the church. And one might say, well, maybe they never actually did love the church. Maybe they just wanted a position, but I don't believe that. I believe that they leave because nobody goes after them. And if Jesus goes after the one, then I believe that we need to be willing to ask those harder questions and, and really find out why did you leave? And what was being said to you that was making you feel not valued or what was hurting you or how did I drop the ball? And I think a lot of leaders just don't have the margin or the capacity to feel like they're chasing people, but we're not chasing people. We're going after them and we're showing them that they're more important than what they did for the church. And I think this generation is looking for authenticity Whereas the generation ahead of us is looking for productivity. And when you yeah. mesh the two together, it is a recipe for disaster. If we're not pursuing people, even when they leave us, if we're only pursuing them when we want what they have, then we become consumers. And that's not what this generation needs. They, they are looking for authenticity and for someone to show them that they're loved. When it comes to chasing people and going after them, in some cases, some would understand that and perceive that as, well, I'm going to throw more scripture at you. I'm going to take you to a coffee shop. I'm going to sit down with you, maybe at, at wherever that may be, pick your place and throw more scripture at you. Is that the right approach or are there better methods or it, it, does that go back to understanding as well? I think you have to know your people. I think if you hire people as hirelings and your staff is made up of people who are just yes men who just want to do what you say all the time. I think that we can't be that way. We have to be in each other's lives. And with my staff, like we go to lunch together a lot. We are in each other's homes. We go shopping. We're out, you know, hiking. There's a, a point where when we become part of each other's lives, then it isn't just a strategic, we'll just read these scriptures and, and do this Bible study and we're all going to be better. But it's understanding what's happening at a deeper level that helps us want to know more about that person. So no, it's not follow these five steps. It's, wow, 
I didn't realize that your marriage was falling apart. I didn't realize that this actually has nothing to do with your role at church, but you're struggling with your sexual identity. Like we, if we don't know those things about people, then we, we can't pray for them. We don't know how to help them. We don't know how to be in their lives. And if we as leaders are so disconnected from our staff, then we will be chasing after people with protocols and processes rather than um, a Holy Spirit encounter with them to sit in the trenches with them and wrestle with them, not just have them wrestle on their own while we watch from afar. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, I think that's very, very interesting on how so many people have a different perspective on how to chase people and how to disciple and I think that we do in some cases lack understanding. What would you say that you would, you wish you had that you didn't get when you were going through that season of wondering and that season of, of maybe searching and, and asking those questions, what is something that maybe you said that I'm going to help people this way now, because this is not what I got then. I'm telling you, out of all of the churches that I've been on staff at, when there has been a toxic leader, there has been an abusive leader, there has been someone who was not well, and I went in and I said, this person is hurting people. I just wish there would have been someone who would have been an advocate and said, I believe you. I yeah. believe you that that's happening. And I'm sorry, not calling me the problem, not saying that I'm divisive. Because I'm going to tell you what, People are tired of getting the phone call a year later that says, we're so sorry, you were right. Like staff members don't want to be right. They want to be heard. And so yeah. when you as a staff member are having someone in your life who is toxic, whether they're a true narcissist or they're just an unhealthy leader, the church really leadership needs to listen to their staff. And I think if I could be anything for anyone on social media right now, it's when they write to me and they say, this is happening. My first thing out of my mouth is I believe you. Whether they're, whether they're exaggerating or not, whether they yeah. are telling me half the story or not, just to be told, I believe you is such a great step for our churches. And I think if we were more, uh, not so busy in programming and trying to execute daily tasks, <clears throat> and we actually listened to people and told them that they were heard. It would go, it would go so far. Yeah. That's a very, very strong approach, very strong method that I think just simply resonates with people in the sense that if they feel heard, then that's a huge step forward in their healing process, I would say. And I think it's very, very interesting. Also the bystanders, maybe not necessarily the people that experienced the church hurt, but maybe their friends did and they saw their friends walk away. They saw maybe a mismanagement or, or misleading in some cases, and they saw it happen. They saw how the mistake was made. They saw how that person was affected and they saw everything step by step. How does, what can we tell those people to kind of help them cope a little bit better? They didn't necessarily go through themselves, but they were witnesses of it as a bystander. I think what gets people in a lot of trouble and specifically women, if I can be honest, is that we're all looking for someone to hear, to listen to us to um, validate. And in the church world, that can look like gossip or divisive talk. When you see somebody going through something, it isn't directly impacting you, but you see it. And then it becomes this like evangelical game of telephone where it's, what well, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? 
blah, blah, blah. I really believe if we had healthy processes in our churches, including HR departments, um, leadership hierarchy where the senior pastor isn't the only person who can receive criticism or feedback that if there were systems in place for those bystanders to go and to say, Hey, so-and-so told me this is happening. I've seen it for myself. What are our next steps that cuts down on some of the chatter makes it appear less divisive, whether that dialogue was divisive or not, and kind of brings order to the system. But I think a lot of our churches are under 350 people in this in the United States and world. Yeah. And so there aren't a lot of churches who can afford HR departments and safety measures like that. And so I would say if you're seeing someone being mistreated um, and it's coming at the hands of a leader, you have to tell someone and it needs to be someone who can actually make the change. Um, and if nobody will listen again, that's where we go back to, is it time to go, not leave and give people the finger and go, but like, is it time to really pray through? Is this the best place for me? Because if there isn't going to be change and it's at the detriment of people's mental and physical health, that's the completely different conversation. Yeah. I want to talk about the book a little bit, but before we do, uh, I was kind of interested also on what were your, some of the some of your bigger takeaways or what have been some of the biggest takeaways from the community that you've been able to reach out and help with the race to stay message? What would you say stands out to you the most? What have you learned from the community or what really jumps at you? I would say that the church needs to do better at transitions. Um, I think a lot gets lost in translation in transition. So when there are new pastors or people are removed from roles, it seems like the most confusion comes around our identity and what we do and what the church is asking of us to do. And so we might come in in one position and be put into a different one or asked to wear multiple hats. And I think that a lot of gets lost in transition in the translation of the transition. Second of all, I think communication stinks in the church. I think we think we're good communicators, but what I'm learning is that most of our church hurt and offense is coming at the hands of poor communication. And so it challenges me as a pastor and as a Christ follower to be a better communicator in everything that I think, say, and do when it comes to other people's lives. I can be as chaotic in my life as I need to be, but when I'm entrusted with other people, what does my role look like in their life to help eliminate some of the confusion? And then finally, I think social media is a huge problem right now with people just looking for those to um, throw under the bus. We want to tag people. We want to at people. We want to... Um, say, yeah, we were right. I think a lot of people, this justice button to prove that somebody really was bad or whatever, we're out for the wrong people. And I think that that's another area where we really need to operate in self-control and discernment to know how and when to respond, when not to say anything, but we have a, a huge platform that's been given to us, whether we've earned it or not. And the social media, I think does uh, cry fire a little bit too soon and causes panic. And that's, um, that's another area where I think we can do better as a church. Yeah. Looking back at some of the generations, like the baby boomers and looking back at millennials and Gen Z's and how times have changed, what would you like to see change in the narrative in regards to church hurt? Because as the seasons change, the generations change, 
the way that we handle the church hurt changes also and the way that we deal with people changes. What would you like to see change in regards to the narrative that relates to church hurt? I think that for our older generation, so like my parents, like the people in the baby boomers, the traditionalist, I think that one of the things that we can do is just acknowledge that that, that there was a, a real hurt that happened, that there has been a disconnect in the generations. There's been a disconnect in the conversation. We also are lacking discipleship and mentorship, which I think as a whole really does help um, get those conversations going. So if I'm being mentored by somebody in their 50s, 60s, or 70s, then we're opening up that dialogue that allows us to better understand, oh, that's what church was like when you were in it. Here's what it's like for me. Another thing is for generations to apologize for some of the things that we've done. I mean, my generation is the one who opened the portal to social media. And if I could apologize for that, I would, because I think it caused comparison. It caused um, all kinds of identity crisis. And we're the ones who didn't even have social media till we were 20, right? And so we walked through our awkward stages without it being on camera. So I think just admitting where we've missed the mark as a generation and then trying to seek to understand, not fix, but seek to understand what the other generation is walking through as Christ followers. My parents didn't have to deal with transgender things. My children, that's all they hear about now. And so how, what does the church look like for them? And so I just think it's seeking to understand and not seeking to fix or change. Yeah. Yeah. I love that approach. And I think that's going to help out a lot of people just simply understanding where people are, meeting them there at that place and going about it that way. And it, it is very, very saddening to see this topic expand and unfold and repeat itself in so many cases. But it's one thing to experience it yourself from inside the church towards people that you're not related to or uh, just in general, the church being hurt or people being affected by decisions being made or things dealt incorrectly. But it's different also whenever the church hurt is experienced from within the family and it's caused by the family. The kids are hurt, but they really don't have many places to run to because maybe their parents are in leadership. If it's not senior leadership, they're in leadership in some shape or form. So what can we tell people that or maybe pastors, leaders and parents in ministry that can help protect their kids? Your kids have to have community outside of the local church. And I know that sounds so anti, like what we were raised on was fear your school friends. The only people you can trust are the church, but that's actually not true. When we surround our kids with different uh, groups of people, different adults, different churches, when we send them to different church camps, when we teach them to love the global church over one singular church, then they will look for the church wherever they go. And that is something my dad did really well when I was a junior in high school. We had something like this happen where it just became evident that I was going to become collateral damage to what was happening within the church. And I went to my dad and I said, hey, there is a church next to the high school that I attend. All my friends go there. They're going on missions trips. Can I start going there? And my dad released me. He said, that's fine. I will handle the church. I will handle the people. If that's where you're growing, that's where you need to go. And it may have saved my life because what it did was it taught me that the people of God are wherever we are, that there are Christians and churches and Christ followers. And though broken, 
if I'm lonely or I'm scared and I'm in a strange city, if I look for a church, I'm going to find God's people. And that is what I learned is that if I raise my kids up around many believers and many people that believe in God and don't believe in God, that they aren't just going to be raised up by one group of people, but they're going to have different experiences and opinions that are going to help shape them as their own little human Christians that they're going to become. And I have found that to be, um, really fun for us. It's been something that we're practicing with our own kids, um, that they're, they don't put all their eggs in one church basket, if you know what I mean. So it's, um, it's a little scary because we don't want them to not be rooted. Um, but what happens, like you said, when that church falls apart or something goes South, where is their community then? Um, so we just, yeah, giving them options, I think is really healthy. Yeah, that's great. I love that. And in some cases, the message that some like to use a lot is separate yourself, separate yourself. And I know that when you're talking about sin and you're talking about holiness and you're talking about relationship with God, there is separation from sin and holiness and walking alongside with God. But in my, in my point of view, my perspective, my opinion, I think we've separated too well. We've done a very, very good job of separation. We've done a good job of separating ourselves. But now I think we've separated ourselves so much that we can't reach others that we lack understanding in some cases. What would you say um, to the people that are kind of struggling with separation and said, hey, look, maybe you step a little too far, but we need to kind of step back a little closer to people to reach them? Yeah, I mean, Jesus didn't separate himself from people. I mean, he he was in the midst of sin without himself sinning. And we're not Jesus by any means. But, you know, um, my dad was an alcoholic, so we wouldn't necessarily send my dad into a bar with alcohol flowing like milk and honey to go do ministry, right? We We know what our boundaries are. We know what our um, temptations are. We know what our limitations are only by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which comes from separation and sanctification and all of that. And so for me, it's always been, what would Jesus, how would he treat people? How would he be in the world? How would he be in this? And now obviously we don't just turn on any show in our house and let anything into the home. Um, We don't let our kids hang out with kids doing certain things. And I myself don't go out with people doing certain things. Um, But I also feel like if we're going to be salt in this earth, in this world, we have to be able to touch the thing we're trying to tenderize. And the only way that salt can tenderize meat is if it touches it. And for me, I just think wherever the Lord is giving me favor, wherever he gives me a voice, wherever he gives me relationship, that's what I'm willing to touch. Does it mean that I'm going to affirm it? No. Does it mean that I'm going to condone it? No. But my kids are going to know non-believers, and I am not going to raise them in a bubble as if this world doesn't exist. And so I'm learning myself. That's going to be boundaries. That's going to be making mistakes. It's going to be exposing myself to things that I wouldn't necessarily um, choose to be exposed to on purpose. Um, But that's why we have conviction. It's why we have discernment. And it's teaching our kids that they too have a Holy Spirit inside of them that's going to say too far. That's enough. Um, but also go on in. I, I have you, you know, and so I just want them to know a God who will give them those boundaries for themselves. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I love that perspective. And I think it's very, very effective. And that's something that I'm learning myself now with a 10-year-old and a five-year-old now looking up to Big Brother and following his footsteps. So there's a lot of learning processes and I love talking to people. And I want to thank you so much for sharing your time with us today because it's helping me and I know that you're helping so many others and the fruit is just speaking very, very loudly. But before I let you go, I know that it's very, very it's an exciting season for race to stay. It's an exciting season for you transitioning from the black boxes, but still working with that, but now getting ready to launch a book. And I know that the pre-order is already available. So talk to me a little bit about that before I let you go. Talk to me a little bit about the process of the book. How did it go from black boxes to book? And how did we get to here? You know, it was funny. I had COVID in April of 2021 and a friend of mine called me and said, Hey, have you ever thought about turning those black boxes into a book? And I said all the time, but I'll be honest with you. I don't have the physical capacity right now. And I definitely don't have another rejection in me. It had been a heavy season of rejection and she's about 75. She's an author with focus in the family. And she said, listen, I've got an agent who wants to hear your stuff, read your stuff. I'm giving you until midnight to submit a proposal. And I don't know if you've ever seen a book proposal, but they're about 35 pages. They are intense. And it was already about 5 p.m. and I had COVID. So for seven hours, I crank out this book proposal of black boxes and I send it to this agent, which literary agents are nearly impossible to get. And the next morning at 7 a.m., I had an email and he said, we're interested. Can you come meet with us? And so I drove to Denver when I was out of quarantine And I was shaking because I just thought, Lord, I don't have a rejection in me. And I got there and he looked at me and he said, are you ready for your life to change? This, this is something. And from that point on, we started pitching it and David C. Cook picked it up about two months later. And it was the Holy Spirit the whole time. Um, Started writing it in September of 2021, turned it in last year. And now it's in pre-sale it's in pre-order with Amazon, christianbooks.com, Barnes and Noble, and pre-orders are huge because it's telling the book world that this is a book worth reading and we're doing really good. We're number one in a couple of categories on Amazon, um, but these pre-orders are what will tell them to carry it. And so July 4th, like I said, me and America are coming to your front door on July 4th, and I will be traveling and speaking all over the United States and Canada between now and then just to get the word out. And I'm just pumped. I feel like it's called Raised This Day. That's what it needed to be. And it takes 12 chapters of us going through the hurt, the hard, the hope, and the holy to get to where Jesus brings us to full circle reconciliation when we let him. And so I'm just really proud of it. I'm proud of my team and really grateful to have Lisa Bevere on board with it. So it's available now. Yeah, that's very exciting. And congratulations. I know, like you said, it's already number one in so many different categories. Number one in Amazon's bestseller. And to be in pre-order phase and have that type of reaction from the people, I know you're helping so many people. You're helping thousands with this topic, with your experience. And I'm excited for the release. And I want to encourage our public. I want to encourage our audience to go and get it and maybe buy a couple copies, not just one, maybe, but there's, there is a, uh, it's a beautiful thing to give away. And I know that we just kind of went through this, uh, this, the holidays and, and 
but giving is a year round thing. You could buy a couple copies, give a couple away, maybe somebody that you know that has experienced something similar. I know that this is going to help them out tremendously. And Natalie, thank you for taking time to speak with us today. Any last thoughts that you want to maybe give our audience in regards to anything that we've covered, church word or not, maybe just simply persevering or anything that's really pressing in your heart these days? Well, first of all, thank you for trusting me with your people. I never take it for granted when I'm invited um, to share an audience with someone who's gained trust and equity with people. So thank you for that. And, you know, the final thing that I, I just always say to our stayers is that the word of God says in Philippians that he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it, not halfway, but to the very, very end until the full completion when we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And there is, God is no respecter of persons. If he says it, he's going to do it. His promises are yes and amen. And so I know there are a lot of us that are listening and we feel like God started something in us when we were kids, maybe when we were teenagers, and it feels like that has died, but God still has a work to accomplish in us and through us. And so don't, don't quit. Don't, don't just give up on it because God didn't give up on us. And if he's finished what he started, um, for the kingdom, he's going to finish what he started in each and every one of us. And that includes you. Thank you so much. I know that you've helped me a lot today. You've encouraged me. And I know that it's going to resonate with so many people like you have been doing already. Thank you so much. Congratulations again on the book release. We're excited for that. We're going to be looking forward to it. We're going to be sharing it also on social media. Where can people find you and where do you spend most of your time these days on social? Definitely follow us over on Instagram at Raise This Day. And then I have two communities on Facebook, a private and a public called Raise This Day. And we just have a lot of great dialogue and conversations. It's a beautiful community. So you'll definitely feel like you have your people around you. You won't be alone. Again, thank you so much, Natalie, for your time, being very gracious with the content and your time. And God bless you. God bless your church. And thank you for everything that you've provided and so much value here today with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for being part of our conversation today. In the description below, you will find links where you can connect with Natalie Runyon and Race to Stay. If you enjoyed today's podcast, go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss out on anything. Also, if you would like to contribute in helping us reach others, I invite you to do so simply by leaving a good rating. You can take a quick moment to leave an anonymous review or share it on social media, and that would mean so much to me. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you. In the description below, you will find links where we can connect and you can let me know how this was helpful to you. You can also visit the blog page where you can find more helpful content like this at inspired2inspired.org, inspired, the number two, inspired.org. And for now, continue moving forward in the direction God is leading you. Continue taking steps closer in becoming who God has intended you to be so you can be impactful in every area of your life. God bless, and we'll see you on the next one.